Hey there. Thanks for showing up. Welcome to Dharma Punks New York. This is Josh, our Tuesday night class. See if there's some announcements. Kathy has completed her somatic experiencing tools deck. So if you're interested in that, you can go to kathycherry.com. It's got like pretty much the entire lexicon of or so much of the lexicon of SE tools on it. Um, they're pretty terrific. And uh, as far as upcoming events, we have the daily pause morning meditation at 8 to 8.30. You can find the link on the dharmapunksnyc.com website. And uh, our in-person classes are the first Tuesday of every month at Grand Street Healing. So I uh, hope you can join us there if you're around the first Tuesday of every month in Williamsburg. So if you'd like to support my work, I'm a Buddhist pastor. I do everything by donation only. Uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC, and Dharma Punks is always spelled with an X. The PayPal information, the Patreon information is on the Dharma Punks NYC website. So that's about it. Without further ado, tonight... The unresolved and unknown, why being with unresolved situations is so difficult and what we can do about it. Before jumping into uh, the topic directly, I'm going to give a little bit of background. Uh, the Buddha taught that all experiences preceded by mind, mastered and created by mind, the Buddha did not believe that the reality that we perceive is accurate, but is actually constructed by the mind. And today, the latest theories in cognitive neuroscience, predictive modeling, present to us idea that while we believe the reality we inhabit is an accurate representation of the world outside of us, and that our senses are windows to what's going on around us. But the way we actually create representations in our mind of what's going on outside of us, and even what's going on in our bodies, is our brains sit in dark skulls, and they receive a cloud of electric signals from neurons, which it has to translate into sights, sounds, touch, sensations, aromas, tastes, and so forth. So the brain doesn't wait to actually represent the world. It creates our sense of the world, the images and the sounds, through expectations, and then uses the incoming sensory data to correct the models that it's built about the world around us. For example, when you walk into a room, the room you're sitting in, when you walked into it, your brain didn't wait to get all of the sensations, the sights of the room. Your brain constructed what it expected to be in the room. Of course, a lot of these expectations are based on previous models of your room, or any other place you've been. But also, a lot of those previous models themselves were based on anticipations, predictive models of what we expect to be around us. And we use incoming sensations to try to tweak the model to bring it closer. But as we'll see, it doesn't actually have to be accurate. Constructing the world from predictions is essential for fast perceptions, motor and cognitive control, and especially decision-making that allowed us to survive in times when we were hunted by predators and we only had split seconds to uh, anticipate whether to attack, run, or freeze. So essentially, we would take in scant information. The brain would use that scant information to basically create a sense of either threat or opportunity, and we would work through that. Uh, today, we know that not only does this allow us to survive, but there's also 
this theory called the, you don't have to know this, the free energy principle, which is not only does having anticipations of the world based on guesses help us survive, but it conserves energy. The brain prefers to preserve its models rather than to expend all the energy to prune and rewire you know uh the models it's we forget that every thought every memory every idea we have is actually underpinned by neural connections so to change an entire model of the world around us requires a massive amount of rewiring so the brain prefers to keep its models until stimuli is so disruptive it forces us to create a new model and that takes up an enormous amount of energies so um shortly after we're born and around the first month of life our brains learn to predict that two circles inside of a larger oval with a moving opening is a face and in time the baby's brain can predict um that a certain face is the mother's face and then through scant information can predict the ours or recognize the mother despite wearing sunglasses hats different haircuts different angles and so forth all of this done by the baby creates a predictive model of what the mom appears and then by 18 months we construct these predictions which are known as internal working models about what to expect from other people we can expect people to be reliable especially people that are important to, to us to be reliable or we will develop models that people are basically unreliable or people are basically disappointing or people can even be predicted to be dangerous all of these based on our early life experiences so it doesn't matter if the predictions are accurate so long as they help us to survive I'll give you a basic example of that human beings and other animals see sharp distinctions between the colors yellow and green but uh actually in nature the colors yellow and green are almost identical but we see them as distinct because that's what helps us spot bananas and fruits by looking for yellow things so the brain doesn't bother to create an accurate representation of yellow in fact it prefers to create an inaccurate representation of yellow there's a wonderful study i really like it's called the invisible gorilla study and it's every bit as wonderful as the title essentially these two psychologists um I can't remember uh Simons or something like that uh they had you can if you look up the invisible gorilla study you'll find it they had volunteers watch a video of people playing basketball and they told the the people watching the video to count the number of passes the players made so halfway through this video someone dressed in a gorilla outfit walks to the center of the screen screen uh waves and then walks off the screen <laughs> so um what's interesting is that half of the people who watch that video never see the gorilla because they don't expect to see it and so they construct a reality where there's no gorilla in it and this is a classic example of how unless we expect or are told to expect something we won't very often see it so given how crucial predictions are to cognitive function when we're faced with tonight's topic unresolved situations uh with survival implications our brains struggle to construct a prediction given the myriad of outcomes that could possibly possibly occur so this is why the 
the four words we uh, might hate to hear the most is we need to talk. If you hear someone say we need to talk, whether it's a doctor or a, <laughs> a person you're in a relationship with or a boss or uh, uh, I don't know, uh, somebody on the news. <laughs> if you hear somebody say to you, we need to talk, generally that opens the door to this sudden uh, concern that something affecting our survival, something important to us, our work, our relationship, our health, is now unknown. And the brain struggles given such an open-ended possibility without any information. It's now guessing and producing a myriad of predictions. And this is why our brain begins to fire rapidly and becomes we become bombarded with these back and forths because the brain is constantly trying to settle on one predictive model of what the future holds for us. Dr. Jacqueline Gottlieb at uh, Columbia noted that when faced with an unknown uh, or unresolved situation, there's a huge shift in brain activity correlated with trying to create a new model of the world. There's complex firing patterns involving almost all of the major processing tests, including the visual and uh, and temporal lobes. So uh, it's what we see is essentially the brain at the expense of every other task is now trying to create a new model or series of expectations about how, how our world will appear. So if there's an unresolved health diagnosis or a situation of financial insecurity, uh, anything that affects our survival, suddenly the brain just starts firing wildly, trying to um, create or generate a predictive model that feels right, but we don't have enough information for anything to feel right or complete. There has been shown to be incre huge increases in cognitive load on working memory, or working memory is how much we can think about in any moment, and cognitive load is, is how much of that working memory we are chewing up. And the more our cognitive load builds up, the harder it is to actually keep tasks and information in mind. We have decreased intention, attention, excuse me, not intention, attention. And that leads to anxiety and overwhelm. And one of the, of course, the things that we're most familiar with during the unresolved and unknown is that the more the brain spirals to try to generate an accurate predictive model in the absence of information, the more negativity bias and the amygdala becomes involved. And pretty soon the models become catastrophizing uh, every health prognosis becomes dire. You know, if a boss says, uh, come into my office, we're sure to be fired. Uh, if we're faced with an unknown bill, we're sure to go bankrupt. So uh, faced with the unknown over time, as we're generating these new attempts at predictive models, the brain creates more and more dire models and the more the di the dire or that's not a word the uh, more threatening or um overwhelming the models the more attention we give to them because threats of course activate the cingulate which is what controls our attention so not knowing is uh so uh stressful that studies show that we prefer even getting bad news to not knowing. So sometimes even when people get really serious diagnoses of health disorders, they actually feel a sense of relief because at least their minds stop churning, trying to figure out 
what's going to happen. Now the doctor can tell them what the course of actions is going to be. Or, you know, if you're, if you're struggling, not knowing if you're going to have a job or not, you find out that you're not going to have a job, that you're going to be downsized. People very often prefer that than not knowing because then they can start taking a pattern of action and accurately predict what the next month or two months will look like in their mind. So they can settle on a single predictive model and they the brains can relax. Uh, Professor Gill's story did this study on cognitive dread. And... Uh, he noted that even wondering when pain will occur is worse than experiencing actual pain. So for example, if you tell someone, I'm going to give you a shock in the next two minutes, or I can give you the shock right now, everyone says, give me the shock right now, because no one wants to sit for two minutes wondering when they're going to get a shock. But even more interesting when he said to people, if I give you the shock right now, it's going to be worse than if you wait. People still say, give me the shock right now. I don't care if it's worse. I don't want to wait two minutes to get a shock. So that's actually, if you want to look it up, that's called negative time preference. We so find the unknown to be so uh, destabilizing and so uh stressful that we will actualize the pain even actualize worse pain right now to get it over with so um adults rely on a variety of defense mechanisms to protect from the anxiety of unresolved situations there was a harvard psychologist valent uh, va I think it's V-A-I-L-L-A-N-T. Um, if you want to look up his work. Um, but some of these defense mechanisms when faced with the unknown are classic dissociation, you know, just overwhelm, freeze, sometimes denial, denying that anything is happening. Uh, addictive distractions um, are very common as our self fixated ideations. And the Buddha noted these in the four clinging, the Buddha noted when we're in stress, we cling to four things to try to protect us from stress. The first is addictive sensations that feel very good, food, shopping, uh, alcohol for some, drugs for some, uh, watching, binge-watching TV shows for some pornography, for some gambling, things that produce dopamine. That's what the Buddha called Kama Upadana. And then some people seek um, refuge from the unknown and in Sila Upadana, which is routines. They just go to work and, and work uh, obsessively hoping to keep in abeyance some big unknown. I remember I worked with someone who uh, was really facing uh, a scary health diagnosis and the way they dealt with it was by literally working, like it seemed like to me, like 14 or 15 hours a day just so that they wouldn't think about it. Uh, and then of course, then there's uh, self-obsessive ideations where one basically visualizes how one will escape from the unresolved. And perhaps the biggest defense is known as intellectualization, where we try to read as much about it, become masters of information. We try to figure it out, even though there's not enough information we start reading uh, about the financial futures or medical diagnoses, or we start asking everyone about the person we're in a relationship with. We try to seek certainty amidst views and opinions, which the Buddha called Ditti Upadana. The Buddha said that this especially leads to what he calls papancha. Papancha is just a myriad, a thicket, uh, just a proliferation of thought. 
So in the absence of having enough information, the Buddha offered several tools to help us uh, calm the mind. And uh, two of the most wonderful suttas, if you ever want to look it up, one is the removal of intrusive thoughts, the Vitaka Santana, and that's V-I-T-A-K-K-A, and then Santana, S-A-N-T-H-A-N-A. And then there's a Sabasava, S-A-B-B-A-S-A-V-A, and those are in the middle-length teachings of the Buddha. So just I'm just going to give a few of the tools. Um, some of them are a little repetitive or redundant. So the three big ideas that I call from these teachings are the first, as the Buddha notes, when we see unskillful thoughts arising, a proliferation of thoughts, one should reflect on a skillful theme that is useful, much like an experienced carpenter would use a peg to push out another damaged peg. So this is not essentially the kind of addictive, like consuming distractions of TV. The Buddha is basically asking us to reflect on themes that will help calm us that are actually true and useful. So for example, one theme is to reflect on the times we were in the past faced with uh unknowns or sudden shifts in our life and how we got through it in the past even with lesser tools or very often even with fewer resources so an absorbing distractor is really efficient the psychologist dan wegner at harvard uh showed that it's the most effective way to uh, essentially inhibit intrusive thoughts. And if you want to read about it, that's in his famous book, White Bears. I've already taught a lot about uh, Wagner's work, so uh, I just will save you having to sit through it again. But if you'd like to look it up, Dan Wagner, W-E-G-N-E-R, and White Bears on uh, intrusive thoughts. So, um, yeah, finding something skillful that helps a thought that helps us calm down, that's not escapist, but that helps us reflect on our resilience, on our resources, so that we don't uh, focus so much on trying to figure out what's going on, but simply create a felt sense of resourcefulness. Um, a second tool is the Buddha teaches when unskillful thoughts arise, one should reflect on the disadvantages of essentially trying to figure out uh, what's going on without enough information. Um, this is what we could call metacognition, which is analyzing our thoughts from the outside. Um, one way to do this is whenever the thoughts start coming up, just to calmly, uh, one, reflect, what would I tell a friend who was going through this exact same situation? Would I tell them to try to visualize every possible outcome or figure out? Or would I tell them to uh, connect with others, to take care of themselves, to treat themselves to self-soothing things like uh, listening to music or uh, I'll let, go through a list of other uh, soothing uh, practices in a moment. One of the things a Buddhist uh, monk who was a teacher of mine for a while used to say was um, ask oneself when the brain is filling up with intrusive thoughts would I be comfortable if this was the last thought I ever had? Or would I be comfortable if everybody know, knew what I was thinking at this moment? That's a high bar. But for sure, I practiced that for a while, and it made it so much easier to let go of 
to stand outside of thoughts and just reflect on their utility. Perhaps the fav my favorite and most useful tool in these teachings is the Buddha says, if unskillful thoughts arise, one should focus on reducing the stress that underlies these thoughts. And then he uses an example. Suppose a stressed individual was walking needlessly quickly. They might ask themselves, why am I walking so fast? And then they'd slow down and then they might say, why am I even walking at all? Then they might stop and then they might reflect, why am I standing? Why don't I sit down or even lie down? So the Buddha is pointing here to that all stress, and especially times during intrusive ideations, that there's always some physiological bracing or tension, what some cognitive therapists, uh, psychologists, excuse me, call somatic markers, essentially beneath every single stress or anticipatory state when we're trying to build new models, while we're doing that, the body braces because we're now in such a cognitively um, heavy task that our bodies get tight and start to, to you know, go into this protective shell because we know we're not pay paying attention to the world around us. So by relaxing the body, what some Buddhists call the body fabrication, just body sensations, uh, softening a tight belly, relaxing the shoulders and letting them drop, unclenching the jaw, opening up the chest so that the breath is very easy. Um, these are strategies that have been shown throughout you know, all different kinds of therapies to help people who are spinning out and spiraling out. So don't try to, and from this approach, even metacognize the thoughts or even have a distractor, just find where the tension is, relax it. And then also in this teaching is when the Buddha says, why am I walking so quickly? Why don't I slow down? Why am I even walking at all? Why don't I stand still? This points to a practice called titration, uh, moving, moving slower, speaking slower, actually makes brain firing go slower, breathing slower makes brain firing go slower. So if you want to slow down the bombardment of intrusive thoughts and the constant generation of catastrophizing outcomes, start by slowing down, moving across the room slower, uh, breathing slower. And so uh, I wish I could speak slower, but when I'm teaching, I'm so excited and have all these ideas I want to present. So I naturally speak fast, but I'm not under any stress when I teach. I actually enjoy it. But if I was under stress and I, my brain was spinning out with dire outcomes, then I definitely practice speaking slower to people. So doctors routinely prescribe what's called benzodiazepines to help people who struggle during times of turmoil. In fact, very often, if somebody's faced with an overwhelming, uh, uh, possibly dire outcome, uh, people very often, uh, friends, uh, doctors push benzos on people. And from one perspective, it's understandable, benzos raise GABA, GABA immunobutric acid, and that's an inhibitory neurotransmitter, which produces a calming effect by blocking excitory signals to the midbrain and the spinal cord. So what happens is the brain starts firing slower. And this is why so many people during uh, stressful situations when they're waiting to hear how a loved one is doing, um, whether a loved one is okay, self-medicate with alcohol to cope. 
because both um, methods, benzos and alcohol, essentially keep GABA um, levels very high. Unfortunately, while these methods can work temporarily, over time, they do the exact opposite. Continual use of benzos or alcohol leads to desensitized GABA receptors, which means once the people stop drinking or the benzo stops taking effect, there's less GABA slowing down the brain. And then what happens is people need even more alcohol or more benzos to get to the same effect. So in essence, we see a mirrored symmetric decline of GABA the more people use alcohol and benzodiazepines. However, there are ways to naturally raise your GABA levels and slow down your brain and produce a calming effect. Uh, and guess what? Uh, the Boston University School of Medicine found out that when people practice meditation, they experience of almost a 30% increase of GABA levels, which is uh, sustainable. It's not a bombardment enough to make you desensitized, but it will definitely calm people down. Uh, the problem, of course, is that people very often, when they're faced with unresolved, unknown situations, find it very difficult to meditate because they're the intrusive thoughts bombard them. So counting their breath or feeling body sensations becomes almost impossible. So there are other ways. And one of the most uh, useful is yoga. A slow yoga practice has been shown to raise GABA 27%. So almost as much as meditation. And while it's difficult to meditate when people are flipping out. It, I have actually, even when I've been in uh, anxious states, find it possible to follow a YouTube yoga class. And I've always invariably found that the effects are very real, that um, doing yoga, a slow morning type yoga practice, um, invariably leads to a calming effect in the brain. Uh, additionally, um, people generally try to calm their brains by eating carbohydrates because that raises dopamine, but that backfires because dopamine like GABA are neurotransmitters that become desensitized. So they need to eat more and more carbs, uh, more and more bread and cheese and cake and even and sugar ice cream to raise the dopamine levels. But if you want to raise your GABA levels through diet, you do the opposite. You eat broccoli, spinach, brown rice, bananas, berries, and fermented foods. And essentially, you go on a health food kick, but that actually has been shown to raise people's GABA levels. Of course, it won't do it very quickly, but if you try a bunch of these practices in tandem, you'll definitely experience uh, uh, an, the, the calming effect we're going for. So before we meditate and practice some calming, there's a couple of, uh, just a couple other tools to mention. Um, Pennebaker's work uh, showed that with writing therapy showed that when people write out catastrophizing thoughts, it's uh, emotionally regulating. Um, even four 20-minute periods of focused writing has been shown to have significant down-regulation of intrusive thoughts. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why. One, when you write something down, your cingulate feels the need less of the need to constantly remind you because over the course of our lives we've developed routines where once we write out notes or write things down we've developed um striatal routines that say okay now i can put this thought aside but until people write out the uh negative you know catastrophizing thoughts 
their brain thinks you'll forget, <laughs> even though we would love to forget, but your brain thinks, no, this is this dire prediction of the world is important. Don't forget about it. So it keeps bringing it up. So writing out catastrophizing thoughts, while it's painful during the writing, it actually afterwards leads to a diminution of intrusive thoughts. Um, and finally, of course, uh, human brains need to seek out other human brains. Uh, and it's important what kind of interpersonal connection to seek out when we're faced with the unknown. And that's, of course, not people who will just sit there and try to cheer us up, nor is it people who will tell us everything's going to be okay or people who sit and catastrophize with us, but simply people whose disposition, attention are soothing, uh, that they send through empathy and attention a kind of felt sense of safety. And that raises oxytocin levels, which is an analgesic. It actually works as a antidepressant and helps also slow down neural firing. So it's important to be clear when you connect with somebody during times where you're faced with unresolved uh, situations to be clear at the outset what it is you need. And in my experience, most people don't need someone to help them figure it out or to cheer them up or tell them everything's going to be okay. They just need someone who can listen and create a safe space. And at times will just naturally reflect back to them when somebody's catastrophizing thoughts are going overboard. So that's all I've got. Um, I hope something in that was interesting as always. If not, um, I'll try to do better next week. So let's meditate and then we'll have time for questions. So find a really comfortable seated position. And uh, close the eyes. And just try to find the sensations of your body breathing. It could be in the tip of the nose, the air coming in, or the belly expanding and contracting. associated with inhalation and exhalation. Some people feel the breath most clearly in the chest. Energy moving up into the chest and with the in-breath and then receding back down, the chest lifting, expanding, then lowering and receding. The energy of the breath can feel like waves coming to shore and then drifting back away from the shore. And for the sake of this practice, just try to cultivate a very slow breath. Breathing in through the nose as slowly as you can, and then try to make the exhalation through the nose 
equally as long, if not longer. To slow down the mind you always want, to shift into parasympathetic states. And the longer your exhalations are, inclines the autonomic nervous system towards parasympathetic states. And if you like, you can visualize a place where you feel really safe, people with whom you feel really seen and cared for. If the sounds around you are soothing, wind or cars in the distance, crickets, or just allow soothing, allow your mind to land on predictable sensations to create and remind the brain that it doesn't right now have to construct a new predictive model of the world. You can just use the one that naturally arises in this moment. So we'll just sit here for a while in silence and just, if you notice your mind chasing after thoughts, remember this is a practice for those times when we don't want to have anything to do with our thoughts, where they're bombarding us and haranguing us. So if you want to learn how to detach from them when life is stressful, you practice beforehand, detaching from thoughts, coming back to the present moment, softening the body, Lengthening the out-breath.
So at this point, if you'd like to try out one of the tools that we mentioned, you can bring to mind some issue in your life that's unresolved, unknown, hopefully nothing too unsettling, something to practice with. It could be a issue that you anticipate. But have put out of mind. Or even a what if scenario. What if I faced financial insecurity or job insecurity? And just notice how just even the anticipation of an unresolved situation can provoke the mind. The first thing you'll note is the mind will churn up either visualizations to represent different outcomes or different ideas, different words in the mind, what if. So the first tool is simply to reflect on something skillful to push the intrusive trying to figure it out, build new models. What's my life going to look like in the future? We want to find a skillful reflection instead. So skillful reflection might be to visualize the people in your life that you can rely on in times of difficulty, Or you might reflect on times in the past where you persevered despite being blindsided by life. You might reflect on your spiritual practice. So these skillful thoughts are what the Buddha referred to as the sturdy peg that the carpenter uses to push out the damaged peg. And the other tool to practice is finding in your body the tension that the subtle contraction or tightness that underpins any repetitive thought. Just bring your attention below the thoughts into the body, where's the tightness? Is it in the belly, the chest, the throat, the shoulders, the jaw, the brow above the eyes? You'll find if you soften and relax the body, the mind will follow. Intrusive, repetitive, stressful thought always 
demands a tight, contracted body. You can even, if possible, without forcing anything, cultivate a neutral kind of Mona Lisa smile if that feels not too inauthentic. So at this point, we're going to bring the meditation to a close. And taking your time at whatever pace feels right for you, just opening your eyes. Note that now, When you open your eyes, without even looking around the room, the sense of the room will come flooding in. Yet another predictive model. And when you're ready, return your attention to the screen.